like you to join me in reading through Mark or in reading Mark chapter 10, the gospel of Mark chapter 10, and we're going to begin with verse 35. So would you stand as we prepare to receive this and hear God's word? Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to start here at verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup? I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, and Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom. For many. May God add his blessing to that word. You may be seated. <clears throat> when I was a, a, a boy, I wanted to become the president of the United States. That was my goal. I had all the president's portraits on my bedroom wall up through Richard Nixon. My my bedroom wallpaper had an American eagle with the emblem of the United States. We had a, I had a, a, an American flag hanging on the wall as well. And I realize it, it sounds rather silly now, but I had a nickname in high school. Some of you may remember the A-Team and Mr. T. Well, I was called Mr. P because of short for Mr. President because everybody knew I was going to do that. And I was president of this or that. Yeah, I was one of those kids, a nerd's nerd. That was, that was me. But things have changed for me. I'm not announcing this morning that I will be running in 2024. But rather, I am announcing I will not be running in 2024. Because the truth is, I'm at a stage in my life when I see the president of either party taking on the oath of office on Inauguration Day, and I find myself thinking, Oh boy, do I feel sorry for him. We've seen again and again over the years how the presidency ages the one who takes that mantle of office. The, the, the presidency just has a way of aging them. You've probably seen the pictures. Maybe that's one of the reasons we should always pray for our president, no matter who is in office. I, I don't agree with President Biden on many profound issues. But I do know as a citizen of God's kingdom, I am commanded to pray for those who lead us. One wonders why anyone now would want to be president of the United States. 
In fact, one wonders why anyone really at all takes on the mantle of leadership in any role. Because leadership means responsibility. And responsibility means time. And time means that you're spending it with people and people cause issues and your decisions to be made and conflicts that surely arise. I told you last week that one of my goals as I return from my sabbatical is to raise up within our church a new battalion of leaders who have vision and want to stand up for truth. And I said the Bible teaches that we aren't just called to be followers of Jesus, but in fact discipleship means we follow Jesus so that we can be equipped to lead others to Jesus. So leadership is an important part of discipleship. But it seems to me that leading, leadership has two basic motives. Whether it's to lead the country or the assembly line at work or a ministry team at the church, there are basically two motivations, and they are quite different. The first is rather noble. You want to make things better. You want to give of yourself and help the mission of that organization. You love the country. You appreciate the values of your organization, your business. You love your church, and you want to make it better, and you appreciate what it stands for. So you decide, I want to help. There's a selflessness that causes you to step up. But you know, there's a second motive, too. And that motive can often be simply as, I just want to be important. The first is selfless, and the second is selfish. What's it like to fly on Air Force One? It's kind of a rush to, to give direction and see people respond accordingly. When, when you're leading, it's interesting that when you walk into a room, people take note, eyes begin to follow you. Whether it's the president of the United States, the CEO of a company, the manager of an office, or the coach of a little league baseball team. I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what's my motive? How do I envision this task? I was once confronted with, I thought, a great question. The question was this, when you are climbing to the top, do you get there to see or to be seen? There's a big difference, isn't there? It's a daily battle, I think, for anyone who takes on a role of leadership to, to keep your thinking straight and your motives pure. In fact, people could start out with a noble goal, but power, if not checked, corrupts. Almost anyone. In this passage, I think we can learn a lot about leadership through the perspective of Jesus. I, I want us to look at Jesus' response to this leadership issue that John and James bring to the fore. And this comes in chapter 10 of Mark. What we see here are these two guys, John and James, James and John, and they come to Jesus. And notice, they don't even ask him a question. This is a statement. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, can you imagine? You can, I mean, this is not a sheepish kind of question. This isn't, Jesus, would, would you please do something for us? 
This is not a sheepish query at all. This is a statement almost in the form of a demand. I want you to do for me whatever I ask. The implication is, is that Jesus, you owe me something. You, you, Jesus, I have followed you. I left my home. I've been spending how much time with you? Now it's payback time. This is what I want you to do for me. And I just want to stop right there and acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of us who look at our relationship with God the same way. God, you owe me. It's time to pay back. I showed up in church three weeks in a row. I made a check out for 10% of my income. So I want you to do whatever I ask. Why? Because it's really about me. And, and what I love here, and, and you've got to look at this, but, and I hope you get the sense of the humor in this, because Jesus he is so patient. I think he knows what's in their heart. He knows where this is going, but he plays along. Well, what is it you want me to do for you? Now, as hilarious as it seems to be that interaction is, the reality is this isn't a surprise to any of us. The Gospels present the disciples of very real people. And almost every one of us has ambitions and we want to get ahead. J. Wallace Hamilton calls it the drum major instinct. He contends that we're born with a desire to, to lead the parade, to stand in the spotlight, to be noticed by others and be considered important. We think that's where the glory is. Of course, we, we, we get this at a very young age. We see it in our children. Look at me, Mommy. I want to go first. It's mine. It's mine. Young people will want to be the first to get a cell phone or they get jealous of another person's clothes or that person who excels on the athletic squad or the student who gets higher grades. They may dress or act in bizarre ways just to get the attention of others. But, you know, it doesn't really stop there. Adults do it too, maybe in different ways. Office politics aren't often really all about the money. It's more often about symbol and status. Why do we feel like we need that bigger home? Do we really need that extra 2,000 square footage? Probably not. But boy, it sure makes us look better and more important. You know, one of the first questions that pastor, pastors ask each other when they go to conferences or when they're sitting in a room together, pastors, you know what the question is? How big is your church? Now, why do we ask that question? Suddenly, we lie to each other, and we forget how to count, and we begin to, you know, make, make terms up and make things, and because the, that's the pecking order. The bigger the church you have, the more important you must be, and the more influence you will have as a result. That's the way the world works. So James and John may not be um, all that shocking as we think about this encounter they have with Jesus. They say to Jesus, let 
one of us be on your right and the other on the left in your glory. It might not be as subtle as some, but the point that they are expressing is a natural desire to be important. And, and I want to make this clear. I, I want you to hear that. It's not necessarily bad to want to be influential and make a difference for God's kingdom. The reality is the people who make a difference in the world are the people who think they can make a difference in the world. But I love this. In Matthew's gospel, when you read this same story, Matthew tells us, he says it was their mother who came for James and John to help them get these positions of prominence. Mark doesn't want to embarrass them by telling us that. He's trying to protect them a little bit. How embarrassing. It was their mother that came to Jesus. And yet, I think that's really natural too. Most parents really want their children to get ahead. My sister was a high school basketball coach, and she told me her biggest headache was always dealing with the overly ambitious parents. She had parents petition for her to get fired because they weren't playing, or she wasn't playing her daughter enough. Parents want their kids to play more, to get more shots, to be the star of the team. And so she would say to me, you know, every high school player thinks she can play at one level above where she can play, and every parent thinks his or her kid can play at two levels where she really can play. And so you have these parents who, quite frankly, had dreams of success and grandeur for their own athleticism, trying to live those dreams out within their children, pressuring them, and by extension, the coaches, and it happens all the time. But Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Now they're thinking, we want to be big in your kingdom. We want the glory. Jesus responds, can you drink the cup? I drink. Can you be baptized with the baptism I will be baptized with? And they answer, we can. Jesus says, okay, you will. You'll drink the cup, you'll get baptized the way I'm baptized, but to be at my right or my left, that's not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared God the Father determines who will be at my right, and God the Father will determine who is at my left when I demonstrate my glory. Now, we're going to come back to that. But first, I want to make a couple of observations about what Jesus is telling us about leadership here and our own desire to lead. And I would start out this way by saying, first, leadership is almost always a lot harder than what we think it is. Leadership is always, almost always, more difficult than what we think it's going to be. You know, the disciples have seemed to have forgotten what Jesus had just told them a few minutes before. We started at verse 35, but listen to what Jesus said in verse 33. In verse 33, he said to his disciples, guys, we are going to Jerusalem. 
we are going to Jerusalem. And I'll stop right there. And they're thinking, well, wow, that's great. The big city. Is this a vacation? Is this going to be a tour? Wow, we're going to Jerusalem. No. This is what the Bible says. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus has just outlined, guys, this is where we're headed. This is what's going to happen to me. This is as clearly as he possibly could. And the disciples are like, uh, it's it just right over their heads. They don't hear him at all. Well, that's nice. Can we be placed at your right and on your left in your glory? And Jesus says, do you know what you're asking? Are you ready to drink that cup? Leadership is almost always harder than you think it's going to be. Dave Millen, who's in the back, and Cindy loved to tell this story. Shortly after I became pastor here, their son Kyle, who was just a young teenager at the time, was early teens. He was asked what he wanted to be when he was ready to pursue a career. He said, I want to be like Pastor Jeff. Well, when I first heard him tell that story, I tell you, I got rather flattered. I'd only been here a short time. I was really kind of impressed that I was having such an influence on a, a really bright young man. But then Dave went on and told me he wants to be a pastor because he says, you only work one day a week and then for just about an hour. And the truth is, that's what some of you think about me, right? You can see sabbaticals, he's not, you know. The truth is, we all, we all tend to see other people's jobs in its glamour moment and fail to see the behind-the-scenes struggle. We think, wow, he's a doctor. He's got that big house, the nice car. I'd like to be a doctor. But we don't think about the hours of intense study, the expenses of medical school, the years in residency, the late-night phone calls, and the disappointing failures. I came across this quote recently from Michael Jordan. Maybe you've seen it. I had never... Michael Jordan, I think, is arguably the GOAT, the greatest of all time when it comes to basketball. Some of you will try to argue LeBron James, and I'm thinking, what? Are you kidding me? This, uh, but Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan had this to say. He said this. He said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game winning shot and missed it I failed over and over and over again and that is why I succeed learning and growth is impossible without failure keep going are you able to drink this cup 
Leadership is almost always harder than you think it is. Every year, I tell the elders of our church, when we get together on our retreat, almost without fail, I will say this or something like it, I am so glad that you are willing to help us lead our church, but you better be ready to engage in a spiritual battle. Because I'm going to tell you, you are under a target. You are engaged in a spiritual battle where your marriage is very likely going to be under attack. Your health, your job, your soul. You better be ready. You better be prayed up. Because Satan doesn't want to bother with people who aren't a threat to him. But a Christ-like leader must be mentally tough and spiritually strong. He can't be easily discouraged. She cannot be easily distracted. She is going to face opposition. And at times, you're going to, to do something that looks like failure. Are you able to drink the cup I drink? But secondly, what we see here in regards to leadership, it seems to me that, that Jesus is teaching us is this, that leadership is God-ordained. In verse 40 of Mark 10, we read these, this, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared, Jesus said. And now notice, Jesus doesn't say, no one should desire to lead. That's wrong, it shouldn't happen. No, that's not what he says. He said, those positions belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by God the Father. God ordained some people for certain types of leadership in his kingdom. It's a gift. You can polish, you can certainly improve it, but you can't be a leader in a particular way unless God has gifted you to lead, called you to lead, prepared you to lead. Henry Ford was once asked, who should be the leader? He said, that's like asking who should sing tenor in a quartet. In other words, the tenor has to be the guy who is gifted with a tenor voice. Any other choice is a disaster. The leader is the one who is gifted and prepared by God to do so. And so, for instance, the Bible tells us clearly, for instance, in Romans 13, 1, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So as Christians, we must always keep that in mind that we are to respect and pray for those who are in authority, whether we agree with their politics or their issues or not. That doesn't change. And one of the criticisms I have deeply in the church today is too many Christians have lost sight of that and too many of us have been discipled by current leaders rather than Jesus and all too often then we have discipled ourselves into this idea that we make our points by demeaning jabs and certain dispersions of the other side. And that is not the mind of Christ. And it is not becoming of Christians. We must respect those in authority. There's a sense where God has put them there. But this request, it gets under the skin of the other ten. They overhear this conversation. Who do you think you are, guys? 
And it just causes me to remember, you know, good leadership brings people together. Bad leadership tears them apart. But notice something else here. Jesus says in verse 42, Jesus calls them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. For many. Jesus makes the point, you know what worldly leadership looks like. You see it all the time. They love to bark out orders, intimidate, and threaten. Worldly leaders think leadership means throwing their weight around and letting people know who's boss. I, I heard about a little boy who was late getting home after school one day, about 15 minutes. He was only a couple of blocks away. He finally got home, and he was obviously a bit miffed about something. So his mom said to him, Billy, I was worried about you. Why are you so late? He said, Ah, oh, Jeremy was the school crossing guard today, and he made us wait for 10 minutes until a car came by so he could stop it. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever worked with someone who just loved to be the boss? Ugh, that's awful. Jesus said, not with you, not so with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant of all. So instead of lording it over all people, the, the Christ-like leader seeks to serve those under him. Instead of demanding attention, the Christ-like leader steps out of the spotlight and looks for ways for someone else to look good. Servant leader doesn't demand respect. She earns respect because she walks the talk. She lives out a life of humility and sacrifice. Now I want you to notice as you look at the broader piece of this chapter, we see this leadership lived out by Jesus. In the chapter uh, in this chapter in Mark, some parents bring their children to Jesus to bless them. You remember what the disciples' response is? No, no, no. Jesus doesn't have time for them. Take them away. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Jesus says, the kingdom belongs to children like thee. Now, they couldn't help him. They were not going to advance his agenda one bit, but, but Jesus, Jesus says, let them come. Jesus didn't treat people differently depending on how they looked or how they might advance his way. Jesus didn't treat rich people differently from poor people. In fact, in this same chapter, look at verse 17, you'll see a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. This is the lottery. This is the jackpot. Rich, young, and he's a ruler too. And the disciples are thinking, wow, this is the guy that we need on our side. This is the guy that can help us in so many ways. And yet Jesus doesn't make it easy for him, does he? 
Jesus says, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have, come follow me. And the disciples, I know what they're thinking. Jesus, can't you make it easy for him? You're going to lose him. Jesus, however, is exposing how he loved money more than he loved God. And so that rich young ruler walks away. And Jesus let him go. There was no favoritism because he was rich. At the end of this chapter, in contrast, there's a blind beggar. He's got nothing. He's there crying on the side of the road, have mercy on me. And the Bible says that there were many who were rebuking him and telling him to be quiet. You're a nuisance. You don't matter. Get out of the way. But all he wanted was to connect with Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. You know the story. Jesus stops and he heals the blind man and he says, your faith has made you well. Isn't it interesting that Jesus let the rich man walk away, but he took the time to care for the needs of a blind man? He served those who could not return the favor. But let's, let's come back to this initial request by John and James. Lord, place us at your right and your left when you come into your glory. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus had just told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? To be proclaimed a king? Not really. To take over? No. I go there to die on a cross. Jesus is teaching on leadership, and he says, for the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many. He says, that is my purpose. That is what I've been called to do. And that is, and Mark is so masterful here, that is my glory. In fact, in Mark 15, if you have your Bibles, you may want to see this. I love this. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. I'll begin here, verse 25. It says, It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. So you want to look at the throne of this king. You see it right before you. It's, it's not laced with gold. He's not sitting there comfortably. It's a cross. He's hanging there, bleeding ready to take his last breath. That's what we did to the king of the Jews. Then look at the next verse. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. You don't know what you're asking could it be that Jesus' moment of greatest glory was being crucified between two criminals? John, James, you don't know what you're asking. 
For on his right and on his left were vile rebels. Those around him were hurling insults at him. Save yourself. And yet something happened in that moment that was the most glorious moment in all of history. It is seen, and Mark again masterfully shows us this evidence here, and he lets it be known. Because when the centurion, this is what the Bible says there in, what is it, uh, uh, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. He looks at Jesus he sees what is happening. And he sees the glory. This surely was the Son of God. How did he know? How did he know who he was? How did he come to see Christ's glory? It came from the cross. The disciples thought his glory was on a throne. But in fact, it came on a cross. At the cross, God's perfect love and his amazing grace and his bountiful mercy was poured out. His glory was dying in shame, beaten, insulted, a criminal on the right and on the left. Because God's kingdom works this way. The way up is the way down, and the way down is the way up. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen, if you want to be a leader in Christ's kingdom, you give your life away. And don't ever be surprised when he leads you, my friend. He leads you to the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. That's leadership in God's kingdom. This morning, I want to close this way. We're going to sing an old hymn. Um, they're going to be passing those out in just a few seconds here. But as they do that, I couldn't help as, as I was uh, thinking about ending this message. This is the only song that came to mind. An old Fanny Crosby song, Near the Cross. I'm sorry about the, the clicks. Maybe I'll try this microphone. Is that better? Okay, thank you. But this is what I want to ask you to do. Are you a leader? Do you want to be a leader? Do you feel called by God to be a leader? Now you say, well, pastor, I'm not a leader. Well, think again. You may lead a company. You may lead your family. You may lead a small group. You may lead a a team of uh, uh, ministry or maybe just a, a group of people who get together for Weight Watchers, whatever it is, you're a leader. Would you be the type of person who commits today to lead like Jesus? We need leaders like that today who understand that the glory is in the cross that we would have the attitude, the same attitude that Jesus had. I noticed that some of you are going to be heading back to school. There are teachers here. You're leaders. And God wants to use you this year in a remarkable way. I want to pray for your leadership. I want you to pray for my leadership.
that it would be a leadership just like Jesus. That we would glory in the cross. Will you stand with me as we sing? I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to begin. Father, I'm going to open this altar right now and I just ask that you would call out leaders. Leaders who are going to step up, but not so that they can just be seen, but that so that they can give their lives away. I pray, Lord, that there will be an army of people in our church who hear the call to follow you and lead others to you. And so whether we're leaders of our family or leaders of a corporation or leaders of a country, may we find our glory the same way you did in the cross. With humility, sometimes it may even look like failure, but the whole story hasn't yet been written. And we will trust you. Would you humble us so that you might be exalted in all things? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This altar is open. I'm asking all our leaders and those who would aspire to be such to come forward and let's pray together, shall we?